Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott, from your bunker. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all safe and sound from your own bunkers. From from our own bunkers? Yeah. Yes. Bunkers, you motherfunkers. Motherfunkin' bunkers. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Yum, yum, yum. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what's new in the world, Scott? I hear there's a virus going around. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, a little pandemic going on. Um, aside from that, I've got some time off work now. Just a mild pandemic. Just a mild pandemic, yeah. yeah just just taking over the world. Yeah, no big deals, right? No, 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 no. Everything's no. fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. Big Dad Scott over here. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Oh, we get, everything's under control. Well, there you go. I mean, things could be worse. Yeah. Well, like, sure. Yeah. Could... <laughs> a comet could be about to collide with us. So. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm. I'm sure that's December. I'm. I don't think that'll make the news though. The way the way things are going right now. <laughs> Do you think that would outweigh the coronavirus? I don't know. Oh, if it's going to collide with us, sure. Yeah. If it's imminent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, while you're self-isolating. <laughs> how, how many how many sub-levels do you have in your home? Oh, no. <laughs> so people are still feeling anxious and depressed with uh, this COVID-19 business. So listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact... The Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. And in the US or the UK, they can text HOME to 741741. There you'll be matched with a volunteer counselor 
who is supervised by a licensed, trained medical professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, please go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. This is, this is the time to utilize it. Yeah. We've said it before. People's mental health can also be severely affected by what's going on right now. Well, let's get on with the show. Uh, this week, we're heading to Winnipeg, Manitoba for the case that many people point to as the straw that broke the camel's back and sparked a long overdue national inquiry. Oh, okay. This case highlights the failure of the Canadian system to protect the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Mm. This is MMIW, No Justice, the story of Tina Fontaine. Oh, this is a familiar one. I was going to ask you that. So you are mm -hmm. familiar with this case? Yeah, yeah. It's been covered quite broadly, but I thought it was time for us to cover it. I, I There's a lot of reasons, though, that I hadn't yet really done yep. it. Because number one, the main issue is that the only person ever charged and tried in the case was acquitted mm. of the crime. I think we can always bring our empathy and unique style to the cases, so... Well, what I've done is essentially most of this episode is just going to be about her life and leading up to that. We will talk about in the second half, the aftermath of the crime and what happened. But all of the first half actually is talking about Tina Fontaine's life. Good. I, I, I quite enjoy uh, how you write most cases and I really enjoy learning about the people that we're talking about, the victims primarily, because you know, the better picture we can have of who they are and just that they're, they're just regular people. They're people. Yeah. They're people. And, and this can happen to almost anybody out there. And so it's, it's, it's uh, important to learn who they are because they, they aren't also just the, the victim. They, they're, they had a life. Right, exactly. Well, there's no happy endings to this story. Uh, if this case doesn't leave you shaking your head, I'm not sure what will. Although Tina did have family and friends who loved her dearly, her short life was not an easy one. Many of the facts about Tina's family and events before her death come from a special report by the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth. And the report was called, A Place Where It Feels Like Home, The Story of Tina Fontaine. As well as the usual suspects like uh, CBC, Global, newspapers, things like that. Another source I used was the book Red River Girl, The Life and Death of Tina Fontaine by Joanna Jolly. It's quite a good book. Tina's mom was from the Bloodvein First Nation, where when she was six years old, due to problems at home, including violence and addiction, she was placed under the care of Manitoba's Child and Family Services and then moved to Winnipeg. She reported to CFS at 12 that she was being sexually exploited by men in the community and was using the money to buy booze. Oh, Jesus, 12. Yeah. Man, that's Violet's age. It was at this time when she met the man who went on to father Tina. He was 23 and she was still 12. Oh, God. CFS tried to put a stop to the relationship that was sometimes violent, but Tina's mother said that Tina's father was, quote, someone who would take care of her as she had had no one in her life to play this role, end quote. Okay. Yeah. 
Directly from the Manitoba Advocate report, Tina's father was a member of the Sag King First Nation. Tina's paternal grandfather was a survivor of residential schools, and his experiences as a child led to years of severe alcoholism and violence. At the age of 12, Tina's father left Sag King to move to Winnipeg, where he would often fend for himself on the streets. While in Winnipeg, Tina's father began to struggle with alcohol addiction. So far, pretty depressing. Yep, and covering um, some pretty, some pretty goddamn dark periods in Canadian history already. When Tina Michelle Fontaine was born on January 1st, 1999, her mom, Valentina Tina Duck, was still only 17 years old and still in the care of the Children Family Services in Manitoba. Her father, Eugene Fontaine, was 28. Tina was their second child. The first had been removed by CFS already. Anytime I hear about these experiences at the age of 12, mm -hmm. like that's just like... It's too early. It's too young uh, to be doing all these you're, things. You're just, you're just figuring life out. Just starting to understand. When Valentina became pregnant, she and Eugene decided to clean up their lives for the little one about to enter... They were getting parental and addictions counseling. Oh, that's great. They wanted their first child back, too. Mm -hmm. And that happened. So the family was reunited after Tina was born, and a third child came along almost a year later. But the stresses of family life weighed on Tina's parents, and they both returned to addiction and were unable to care for their children effectively. Oh, shit. Tina and her younger sibling were temporarily placed under the care of CFS when she was just two and a half years old. Okay. This whole situation seems so unstable because of addiction. and I, I know it's not a mystery to anybody the damage addiction does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, both her parents had a very, very traumatic childhood. Her mother had been, as we mentioned, exploited and her father, you know, Yep, residential schools. I mean, they, they both have had experiences that a good chunk of people would have followed that same path. Not to make, not to say that it's okay, but the experiences they've had. It's not about being okay. It's just about that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. Tina's parents separated in 2002, and Tina went to live with her father, with her sibling, because he was doing the best he could to care for those two children, and with the help of his family. Tina's mother fell into another relationship, and she went on to have a total of seven children. Oh, wow. Eugene's alcoholism became a problem again in 2004, and he was diagnosed with cancer at the same time. This is when uh, Tina moved in with her paternal great-aunt, Thelma Favel, who would become her caretaker. Tina started calling her Mama or Grandma, and they lived in Powerview, a community next to the Sag King First Nation. Mm. In school, Tina was described as hyper and had trouble with reading and writing. There were suspicions that uh, she could possibly have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but uh, formal assessments, although requested, were not completed. Mm -hmm. And this will be the story as this goes along. There were lots of requests for help that never seemed to materialize. Which is a reoccurring pattern that we cover often. 
Here are the comments from Tina's final grade two report card. Quote, she may struggle in the language arts area if she doesn't practice her reading skills more. However, she has good work habits. Her math skills are fair. Tina will need to make a big effort to listen to instructions and she should do well, end quote. Well, some optimism there from the teacher. But still in grade two, it sounded like she's struggling. Struggling for sure. Tina had to repeat grade three. Her final report card that year read, Tina needs to put more effort into her work. During this term, she showed little improvement. Like, I, I, I was reading that and I was thinking, she's in grade three. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if a kid is struggling that much in grade three, there's something else going on with that child. Well, and Am I wrong? In, yeah, no, I, I agree. And in the early grades, I mean, you're really learning the foundation uh, of a lot of different uh, lessons. And so if you're not getting it that early, yeah, then it's only going to compound and the later grades will only become more and more difficult in, in mm. my experience and in watching my daughters and stuff. But um yeah, it's really diff it's really sad to watch kids struggling and yeah. knowing that it's it's only going to build. Mm. Tina's father died when she was 12 and in the 5th grade. Tina was devastated. Even though they did not live together, he remained in Tina's life until he passed away. Tina was very depressed. She got a tattoo with her father Eugene's name and a pair of angel wings and the dates of his birth and death. Even though he had been very ill, it wasn't cancer that killed him. He had been in an argument over money with two men while he was drinking with them and had been assaulted badly, leaving him with head injuries that would eventually prove fatal. Oh, man. Yeah, that's another trauma for a child right there. I mean, good God. Tina withdrew from her family and began smoking weed. Tina missed her dad terribly. Some believe the death of Tina's father is the event that finally steered Tina down the path that would eventually lead to her own murder. Over the next couple of years, as Tina entered her teens, she began missing school and was harder for her grandma to deal with as she spiraled downward, not receiving sufficient counseling or support to help her deal with her father's homicide. Uh. The stress of life as a teenager was exacerbated as Tina's family awaited the outcome of the trial of the men who had been charged in her father's death. As that trial progressed, Tina's behavior worsened. From the Manitoba Advocate report, quote, In October and November 2013, Tina, aged 14, began to run away from home, further disengaged from the school, and often would not attend classes. The school social worker indicated that she connected with Tina's grandma, who is now at a loss at how to help Tina. End quote. Oh, man. This is getting sadder. Tina was reported missing numerous times to the RCMP. After fights with her grandmother, she would just bail and leave the house. She would turn up sometimes days later. There'd be another fight about her lack of adherence to the house rules, which would again lead to her taking off one more time and the whole affair would repeat itself again and again. Often, Tina would take off to Winnipeg, sometimes in the vehicles of older men. Oh, my God. She's 12, 14, you know. 
Jesus Christ. It's terrifying. Tina's grandma was worried sick. Yeah, no kidding. She reached out again and again for help with Tina, but the system either was not equipped to or did not offer the help that she was requesting. Reoccurring pattern. Around the time she turned 15, Tina began to cut herself. According to the Manitoba Advocate report, Tina, quote, expressed her anger by inflicting superficial cuts on her forearms with a pen. RCMP were contacted by the family and reported that Tina had cut her arms and locked herself in her room. Paramedics were called to the home and transported Tina to the Pine Falls Health Complex. When asked by a nurse, Tina indicated she had never self-harmed before and denied having suicidal thoughts. Tina's cuts did not require stitches. They were cleaned, bandaged, and she was discharged. God, just, it's really painful thinking about somebody that young and in that amount of despair. In April of that year, Tina was suspended from school for being high in class. Things continued to just get worse for her. In July of 2014, Tina ran away to Winnipeg to hang out with her mother. Tina's boyfriend at the time messaged her grandma over Facebook. He was concerned about Tina. According to the Manitoba Advocate report, he told her that, quote, Tina and her mother were using crack cocaine and that Tina was being sexually exploited. They were using crack together? Yes. Oh, shit. Okay. And Tina, again, was reported missing by her grandmother. <sighs> On the morning of July 17, 2014, Tina was located, picked up, and taken to a short-term detox by Winnipeg Police Service. On intake to the detox center, she was found to be severely intoxicated, claiming, quote, she had consumed 15 to 20 beers and chugged a liter. End quote. God. And that was just in one day. She said that she'd been taking pills the day before. Tina slept off her drunk there and was released that afternoon and went missing again. Over the next three weeks, Tina's grandma and CFS would report her missing numerous times, in and out of the youth, youth shelter and other emergency uh, placements. Tina would turn up days later, once covered in hickeys, and looking much worse for wear each time. She admitted to drinking and drug use and to being sexually exploited by older men. At one point, Tina was asked about her relationship with her mother and she said, quote, I like her, she's cool, I think she's funny and she tells me cool stories about her life, end quote. So they're close in age, really. Which is terrifying. Also, you, if you really think about it, her mom never really got a chance to grow up either. Yeah. Because she was caught in this cycle of addiction and doing the things that she was doing at that time. So It sounds like they've gone through a lot of similar experiences and kind of mirroring their coping skills. Yeah, well, they do say that uh, these diseases like alcoholism and addiction are intergenerational. Yeah, for sure. Tina was seen by a CFS support workers at a youth shelter early in the morning hours of August 8, 2014. This is believed to be her final 24 hours alive. Her legs were badly bruised, and she claimed she'd, quote, tripped over a skateboard. She left soon after. Hours later, Winnipeg Police Service stopped a car with an older man who'd been drinking behind the wheel and had a suspended driver's license. In the car with him was 15-year-old Tina, 
who at first claimed her name was Tessa Tuhart, but later admitted that her name was Tina Fontaine. Mm. Finding that she was a minor, police took her back to the shelter, but she left again. According to the Manitoba Advocate report, Tina turned up at, quote, approximately 10 a.m., six and a half hours after leaving the youth shelter, two individuals found Tina unconscious in a back alley near the University of Winnipeg, a known area for sexual exploitation. Oh, shit. They reported this to the University of Winnipeg security. Tina was unable to be woken up. University of Winnipeg security noted that Tina was not fully clothed from the waist down. Oh, my God. 911 was called by the University of Winnipeg security. Paramedics responded. They were able to wake her. She was taken to the Health Sciences Center by ambulance and told paramedics that she had been with a man and had been consuming alcohol, cannabis, and other drugs. She presented as confused and had blisters and burns on her lip. Tina admitted to using alcohol, cannabis, pills, and gabapentin. Oh my god. Tina tested positive for amphetamines, cannabinoids, and cocaine metabolite. A pregnancy test was negative. And how old was she around this point? She's 15. Oh. A doctor tried to talk to Tina about sexual exploitation. She denied she'd been sexually assaulted. She refused to be examined further. As she was medically okay at that point, she was released around 3.30 p.m. into the care of a CFS worker. The CFS worker drove her to an emergency hotel placement, and Tina mentioned she wanted a bicycle. And according to a CBC article on the case, she said that a much older man, quote, a meth user named Sebastian was going to get her a bike. Sebastian was the alias of a man who would come into play later on. Mm. Tina met the respite workers at the hotel around dinner time that night. She was offered some food but turned it down. She left the hotel at 5.30 p.m., Tina Michelle Fontaine was reported missing for the last time on August 9, 2014. Winnipeg Police Service issued a citywide BOLO, be on the lookout, for Tina, but no other steps were taken to locate her over that weekend. 15 is a, is a, is a child. Yeah. There's just no way around it. That, that's a child. And hearing about her experiences and what she must have gone through and this, like, that's her life. That was her, it's, it's, it's not okay. And if this was a little white girl from the Burbs, there would have been a massive effort to try and find her that weekend. But that's not what happened. It wouldn't be for another three days until some real efforts were made to find Tina Fontaine. On August 12, 2014, CFS workers and police began contacting some members of Tina's family, including her mom, Valentina, and asking them if they'd seen the girl. And, of course, they hadn't. Adding insult to injury, Tina's grandmother was sent a bill for $500 for Tina's ambulance ride to the hospital on the day before she disappeared. Oh, my God. I know it's just procedure and stuff, but... Uh... It would be days before Tina's loved ones and authorities knew what had become of the 15-year-old. We'll break right here. Uh, yeah. Like, it's tough because there's so many things, you know, I want to say in regards to, oh, I wouldn't, 
you know, they wouldn't have let that happen with my kids and stuff. But it's so easy to say. I'm a fucking white guy, a white male in yeah. North America. Like, right. I didn't have the obstacles they had put in front of them. So I'm in no position to judge. Tina seemed to have fallen through the cracks. We're not social workers here, but, you know, something tells me more could have been done to help this yeah. girl. Surely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what specifically. Maybe placement in, in a foster home. Or something like that. But, I mean, maybe she just would have left. I don't know. Uh, the system needed to intervene much earlier. Because mm -hmm. by this point, she's had a life of traumas. Her coping skills are so beyond healthy. Yeah. That it would take a lot. Not that it's impossible. So the system failed right from the get-go. On the morning of August 17, 2014, Winnipeg Police Service dive boats were searching for a local man who'd gone missing on the Red River two days prior. Another two locals, a man and his son, not connected to the police search, were going fishing near the Alexander Docks that morning when they noticed a bundle floating in the water four and a half meters from shore. Wrapped in a brown and green duvet, Covered partially in a plastic bag was what the men quickly realized was a small human body. They called 911. Yeah. And as police were on the river, they attended pretty quickly. At 1.50 p.m., police and homicide investigators locked down the scene and brought the body ashore. It had been in the water for a few days, but was recognizable as a female, possibly a young teen. From Red River Girl by Joanna Jolly, quote... The pathologist began his investigation by photographing the knots that held everything together at the top of the bundle, recording that there were two sets, each consisting of several simple knots tied on top of each other. As he removed the material around the body, he saw that it had been packed with several rocks, large and small, weighing 11.5 kilograms in total. Hmm. So someone had wrapped her up, weighed her down, and thrown her in the river. Yeah, clearly with the intent of body uh, sinking to the bottom. The young female was 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighed just 73 pounds. According to Red River Girl, quote, she was wearing a short sleeve t-shirt with the words Born to Rock printed across the front, a bra, a short skirt that looked like it had once been white, underwear, pink Adidas high top sneakers and short socks. That's a tough visual. A CBC article on the day Tina was found said she was, quote, wrapped in a bag and in a condition she couldn't have put herself in, Winnipeg Police Sergeant John O'Donovan said. Well, She's yeah, you're not going to wrap yourself in a blanket and tie it with knots and rocks and roll yourself into a river. It's impossible. Yeah. She's a child, he said. This is a child that has been murdered. Society should be horrified, he said. That's why we're asking for people to come forward, and that's why we're asking people to help us and come forward with anything that they know about this child, end quote. I can't imagine anybody finding her body. Um, I'm just visualizing them you know, unwrapping, taking the knots off, unwrapping, and then seeing a, a, a child. Oh, God, I, I don't care who you are or what you've done. That That's traumatizing. Her body was moderately decomposed, and but her face was not recognizable. The water had done its grim work. 
No broken bones or any signs of sexual assault were discovered during the autopsy. The decomposition was far too advanced to properly determine the cause of death. Although she had marijuana in her system, drugs were ruled out as the cause of the girl's demise. Between her shoulder blades, high up on the young girl's back, was a tattoo. It read, Eugene Fontaine. Underneath that, 0103-1970-3010-2011. That's about as specific as it gets. Yeah, it was definitely her. Tina's grandma, back in Powerview, had to find out about her death via a Facebook post. Yeah, that's not how you want to find out anything. Everything about how these poor families are dealt with, it's just so cold. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. You know, uh, there's a book called Just Another Indian. Mm. And that's what I keep thinking about is the title of that book. Yeah. And it's meant to be shocking. It's like the whole system is just set up to think, oh, well, she was a problem child. She lived a, quote, high-risk lifestyle. It was just a matter of time before this happened to her. She was 15. I, I keep wanting to come to the defense of the officers a bit in my head. I constantly, I'm like, well, I'm sure that they weren't consciously thinking or consciously doing this or that. But again, kind of what I was talking to you about earlier is that that's just not okay for me to say or think because I, I'm a white male living in North America. I'm I'm in no place. Uh, yeah, I haven't had to experience uh, racism or prejudice from a police officer or or anybody. So uh, I'm really in no position to say. I'm sure they weren't. Uh, you know, race didn't play a role. I I'm in no position to say that. When you hear these cases and these examples. You, you can't think anything other than like, it, it, these aren't just one-offs. No. These aren't one-offs. You hear it all the time. And do I think that they're sitting there twisting their, twiddling their fingers going, aha, yes, let's, let's not care about this one. No, but there's this systematic uh, instilled uh, culture. Yeah, like I don't think they're doing the snidely whiplash, you know. Exactly. Twisting their mustache kind of thing and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. There's this developed, progressive, like, oh, God, not this again. You know, and it's just so it's easy to kind of dismiss. A two-hour funeral service was held for Tina Fontaine on August 24, 2014 in Sag King First Nation at St. Alexander Roman Catholic Church at 2 p.m. 200 people were there, and it was followed by a traditional feast. There were renewed calls for a national investigation to be held for murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. But the Conservative government, headed up by our favorite person Stephen Harper, continued its rejection of those calls at the time, saying it was, quote, unnecessary. As Tina died while in the custody of CFS, uh, Manitoba's Office of the Children's Advocate began their review of the case right away. Police began receiving tips quickly, too, and they ran down each one. From Red River Girl, quote, A witness called to say she had overheard two black men talking about how they had killed a girl and needed to be careful not to say anything about it. An anonymous email told a similar story, but detectives couldn't confirm either account. O'Donovan added them to his growing file on the Kenyan and Nigerian 
judging it was time to send the forensic team to their rooming house to search for traces of Tina's DNA, and they didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Tina's boyfriend was a young Cree man named Cody Mason from St. Teresa Point. One night, sometime in mid-July, Tina and Cody were drinking on the street when they met a rough-looking man riding on a bicycle. He had a car muffler under his arm. The man told him his name was Sebastian. Mm. From CBC, Mason said that the man, quote, gave them drugs and took them to various houses. On August 6th, Mason flew back to St. Teresa Point and Tina rode a bicycle to the house, upset that Mason had left. That same night, witnesses who had been at the house that Cody mentioned saw Tina and the man she knew as Sebastian arguing. Sebastian had sold Tina's bike to get high and she was pissed. She left in a huff and called 911 to tell police about a truck that Sebastian had stolen and was keeping at the house. Here's a portion of the call that was obtained by CBC. August 6th, 2014, 22 hours, 18 minutes, 41 seconds. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Hey, um, I like to report a blue truck that was stolen earlier today. Okay, and do you know who stole it? This guy named Sebastian. Is it your truck? What? Is it your truck? No, um, he's my friend and he stole it earlier today. Okay, you need to call the police directly. Yeah, yeah. And when you get the recorded message, press 8. That'll take you directly to a person. Okay, then. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was her voice. Yeah, that's, uh, she sounded young and sweet. Like, if you listen to the tone of that voice, that was not an experienced person. No. 15, though, I mean, you're not experienced. She's probably way too experienced for that age. Yeah. But still, the the basics of, do I call 911 to report a stolen car or the police department direct like she wasn't argumentative she wasn't uh pushy or just okay yeah okay i will looking through video at a hotel near where tina had been staying a police constable found footage of a dark blue truck matching the description that tina had called in from red river girl the video recorded in the early morning hours of august 10th This is the day that she had gone missing. Yeah. Showed a 2008 Ford F-150 drive into the parking lot of the hotel and stop. Quote, its lights were turned off and the driver appeared to sit in the dark for some time. O'Donovan thought he could make out a faint light inside the truck as if a flashlight was being waved around. For 30 minutes, nothing happened and then there was movement around the front passenger side. After this, the truck's headlights came on and the truck accelerated away at speed, plowing straight over the sidewalk and the grass verge that separated the lot from the road. It seemed that whoever was driving wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. Interesting, right? And this timing matches up roughly to the time of her disappearance. Interesting that it just sat there for 30 minutes, nothing really happening other than some light moving. So are are they suspecting that she was in the vehicle at that point as well? Because they said movement in the passenger seat. Yep. Her body ends up in the water. 
Yep. They it had to get there somehow. Yep. So what better way to transport somebody than in a truck? Mm-hmm. Perhaps the uh, constable was watching the actual murder go down. Yeah, yeah. Who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, circumstantially, that may be what has happened. Yeah. However, we don't know for sure. Yeah, no definitive uh, evidence right. indicating. Police discovered that the man who Tina had called Sebastian, the man with the truck, was really 51-year-old Raymond Joseph Cormier, a drifter and known meth user who slithered around the Winnipeg area. 51-year-old with a 15-year-old. More than one person claimed they had seen Cormier with a duvet that matched the one Tina had been wrapped up in. Another man claimed that days before Tina had gone missing, Cormier had told him he wanted to have sex with her. Cormier and the truck were nowhere to be found. The truck was discovered abandoned near Portage Avenue on September 17, 2014. This is over a month later, but still no sign of Cormier. On October 1st, 2014, a man named Ernie DeWolf, who was in jail on another charge, told his jailers that he wanted to talk to homicide investigators about the Tina Fontaine case. Mm. He told cops he knew Cormier. The man claimed that he had seen Cormier and Tina together on a number of occasions. He told them that Cormier had told him he had had sex with Tina and, most informative of all, was staying at a townhouse at 22 Carmen in Winnipeg. Mm. Cops went to 22 Carmen and sure enough, they found Cormier there. But when he saw them, he bolted. According to Red River Girl, he yelled, you won't get me on any chicken shit charges as he tried to escape. Well, that's usually what innocent people do. Mm-hmm. That's something you would yell out as you try to bolt. After a brief chase, he was apprehended and taken into custody cautioned that he may be charged later with Tina Fontaine's murder. Video of Cormier being questioned that day shows a closed-off, disheveled man with his hands cuffed behind his back. As police ask him questions in the interview room, he doesn't make eye contact once, but continues leaning with his head against the wall, face downward. He talks about the argument that he and Tina had on the night she called police on him. He said that he had not seen her since she'd left and had learned about her murder in the newspaper. He said he was having trouble remembering the dates. Uh He denied ever having sex with Tina, although he admitted to wanting to. He said he was angry because he had sold her bike. Nothing more. She was a kid after all. He yelled that there must be DNA and was told by investigators that they were looking into just that. 22 Carmen and the truck would be scoured for DNA, but none was found linking Tina and Cormier, and nothing was found on Tina's body, nor on the duvet. Water had washed it all away. Yeah, days in a river will will really compromise evidence. According to Red River Girl, Cormier had had enough. After asking for a lawyer, Cormier yelled, I did not kill that girl. I didn't kill fucking nobody. I don't know what happened to that fucking little girl. End quote. One witness told police more. Tina had run off because Frenchie was, quote, creeping her out from Red River Girl. Quote, he tried to make it sound like a joke, she said, but I saw him try to go for Tina's boobs and say, just do me. Oh. 
Tina moved out of his way, shouting, fuck off, you know I'm only 16. But he just laughed. We all said, hey, she's just a baby, leave her alone. So there was a lot of people around in this house who were watching the way he was behaving toward her. Yeah. Cormier would later go on to say uh, that someone in jail had told him that the leader of a local bike gang had killed Tina because she owed him $250 for coke. Mm-hmm. Sure. Cormier was released for lack of evidence, but police kept close tabs on him. He was suspect number one in Tina's murder. Yeah. In December 2014, months after Tina was gone, Jonathan Starr and Nicholas Abraham had pled guilty to manslaughter and the death of Eugene Fontaine, Tina's dad. They were sentenced to nine years in prison. It was another tough year for the Fontaine family. God, no kidding. Over the next year and a bit, police employed a Mr. Big Sting on Cormier. <sighs> I was going to say, like a minute ago, when does the Mr. Big Sting come into play? And here we go. Here it is. Yeah. Despite the technique's 75% success rate, Cormier did not confess to Tina's murder to police operatives. But... The microphones in his apartment did pick up a telling conversation that Cormier was having with a female acquaintance one night while stoned. Oh. From Red River Girl. Quote, You ever been haunted by something? Asked Cormier. He continued, I know I'm really moving into the realm of fucking psychiatry, psychology, what happened there. It's not right. Fuck. It's right on the shore. So what do I do? Threw her in. O'Donovan pressed pause so he could take in Cormier's words. Was he admitting he had th killed Tina on the banks of the river and thrown her in? Sure sounds like it. He noted the time of the statement and turned the recording on again. What do you mean, the girl asked. I did Tina. Fucking supposed to be legal and only 15. Not going back to. The cops said if there would have been DNA, then probably they would have had enough evidence to charge me. You know that? For the murder of Tina Fontaine, end quote. But it sounds like a confession to me. Does it, though? It's vague enough to um, make any uh, prosecutor say, oh, I don't I don't know if this we can hang our hat on this. But to the average person, that certainly sounds like a confession. Well, police thought they had Cormier right there. Yeah. They flew him to Whistler, B.C. after that. You know, they have to go get the real confession from him uh, because now they feel like they have details. Yeah. That's the typical end to the Mr. Big Sting. But Cormier would not confess. He said he thought Winnipeg Police Service was involved in Tina's murder. Oh, okay. Thinking the earlier tape recording with all the other evidence might be enough, Raymond Joseph Cormier was arrested and charged with a second-degree murder in the death of Tina Fontaine on December 12, 2015. Cormier talked to the CBC about the Mr. Big Sting in 2016. Now, this is before his trial. Okay. He told CBC's Kate Nicholson, quote, He figured out early on that the neighbors who befriended him were undercover police officers. He played right along with them. He went on to say, Quote, basically, for the most part, I was guilty for almost everything I've ever done. I'm not a saint, he said, but I'm not a demon or anything either. This is wrong. It's wrong to do this to somebody, end quote. Do you think this guy knew that he was being Mr. Bigged and played along with the cops just to get some money out of them and make fools of them? Um, 
that's really tough to say without watching some of the footage they have with him and stuff. It, it's tough to say. I don't think he he might have had a, his suspicion and, you know, told himself, well, don't say anything, but go along just in case they're legit. But I, I, don't, yeah. he, I don't think this guy's bright enough to kind of, oh, let me reverse manipulate you guys. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think he's... My gut tells me um, he had a suspicion, so he erred on the side of caution, but went along just in case it was legit and he could not turn uh, turn down a good thing. Yeah, and get himself into trouble in the meantime. Yeah. yeah. Cormier finally stood trial in early 2018. The Crown's largely circumstantial case relied heavily on the tape recordings made yeah. by police, yeah. and they were presented as evidence against Cormier. At one point on the tape, the man who'd been arrested over 90 times in his life was heard to say, there's three rules in crime, deny, deny, deny. Yep. Other evidence was given by those who had seen Tina and, Tina and Cormier together, but there was no smoking gun, there was no physical evidence strong enough that linked Cormier to Tina's body, there was no crime scene, nothing. There had been no preliminary hearing that would have highlighted the holes in the Crown's case. Yeah, I mean, because I can see that they're going to go with uh, the defense will say, um, you know, he said that because he was trying to impress this person or th there's so many ways to kind of spin it. Uh, yeah. Well, it's on the it's on the crown to to prove beyond a reasonable doubt whether or not he did anything. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't I don't think I would have tried to go uh, and take this to uh, uh, prosecute yet. Uh, but it's easy for me to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. not uh, I, I'm not a, a lawyer. I'm not a, a prosecutor. But it seems like I, I wouldn't hearing what they had. I'm not sitting here thinking like, yeah, you got this guy. Yeah, you're right on the money there. The outcome was not what Tina's family had hoped for. Yeah. Here's a global news report on the outcome. Not once do our people ever get justice. It's a feeling of disbelief after Raymond Cormier, the man accused of killing 15-year-old Tina Fontaine, was found not guilty. All the systems that were to protect Tina failed her. And to this day, the system that's supposed to protect and correct society has allowed for somebody to walk free. A day filled with heavy emotion. The 15-year-old's great-aunt, Thelma Favel, already in tears as she walked into the courthouse to hear the jury's verdict. And after, she couldn't contain her feelings, yelling at Cormier, my baby, that was my baby, you blank. Fontaine's birth mother screamed, you think you got away with it? The three-week trial relied heavily on circumstantial evidence, an audio of Cormier, which the Crown believed was an admission of guilt. But there was no forensic or DNA evidence linking the 56-year-old to Fontaine's death. Yes, we're upset. We're upset with the system. This murder is a clear example of how the CFS system, the Winnipeg police and society has let us down again. After spending more than two years behind bars, Cormier is now a free man. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. <sighs> yep. Winnipeg Mayor Brian Bowman said in a statement that his thoughts were with the Fontaines and 
with members of the Sag King First Nation. Quote, Winnipeg and Canadians may have different views on today's outcome in the case. I think it's important, however, to be mindful that for many people today is a day marked by grief, anger, and broken hearts, read the statement. No one can be blind to the racial tensions in our country. End quote. Yep, true. Tina's family was the way they were because of what they had been through. Mm-hmm. Just because Tina was where she was, doing the things she was doing, she did not deserve to die. hundred percent. She did not. Yeah. It all starts with trauma. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It, the root of all that substance abuse is trauma. It's flawed coping. Mm-hmm. It's not somebody saying, I want to do bad things or I choose to go down a life that's going to be miserable. It's flawed coping skills due to trauma. It's just heartbreaking. It's incredibly heartbreaking, yeah. This is why I tend to avoid some of these cases is because it's dis- it's disgusting that there are people in this country who feel so apart from. Yeah. And because of the way the system works, because of the way we've treated them, because of the way they continue to be treated, that, as I've said, on back through the years, eons, the, it, the Indigenous people of Canada feel like we are these evil, I don't know. We have the system and we have set them up to struggle. It's just the fact of the matter when when we come and we marginalize a group and you segregate them and you separate them and tell them they don't hold the same value as you do, and you do that for decade after decade after decade, there's going to be systematic struggles in place. But how, that, does, how does this get fixed, right? Like, this is what I think is like, how can, you know, we tell these stories and be a part of the solution rather than being part of the problem? Well, the struggle is the second you try to put in place measures to reverse it. If we look at the states and we look at affirmative action, which was a step to try to offset a lot of these things the white people start flipping tables and get defensive and so it's the second you start to take steps like the way to to offset this is to give them some advantages is to is to give them some steps ahead to make up for the miles we've been running ahead of them and the second you do that then people start to get upset and defensive and fight back and it's just disgusting. We, we've got to get to a place where we're okay saying, yeah, you know what? We, ex- we acknowledge what we've done and we're going to, um, I'm going to step back and I'm going to give more Aboriginal, Indigenous individuals. Uh, we're, we need a PM, an in- Indigenous Prime Minister. We need Indigenous Premiers. We need Indigenous leaders. We need to... St- but it's just... Yeah. I mean, we see people like Jody Wilson-Raybould making steps. Yes. 
you know, like she is, uh, she's kind of leading the way in that regard. People who are voting in these places are not always people who will elect somebody who is different than they are. Where we live in the lower mainland, in Vancouver, it's incredibly multicultural. So we can get kind of spoiled in thinking, oh, the problems are getting better. Mm. Yeah, you take a you know, couple hour drive out and you get in some rural areas and some other provinces and, and it's, it's a different world. Yeah. It's a different world. And so uh, it can seem to a lot of us progressive individuals that I, I see things improving. I can see an indigenous PM someday. Yeah. Step uh, step east a little bit because we're on the west coast. So you only one way to go. You start stepping east a little bit, you know, get more rural areas, and uh, it's a different tune being sung. I think a big part of it too is people are afraid of losing what they have. Absolutely, there's always fear. Yep, uh, and that the whole idea of that power dynamic yep. is if you give power to somebody else. How are they going to wield it when it comes to you? The future will get better, but it's not going to be. It's not going to be a one eighty on how 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 the shit because yeah, culture growth is not something that'll happen short term. But we got we'll keep fighting and, and doing what we can to try to help it to things level. Well, let's get on to some voicemails. Let's just lighten it up a little bit. Woo! yeah. Uh, let's listen to this one. Oh, it looks like this one's from Georgia. Oh! Georgia, like Macon, Georgia. Let's have a, pe let's have a peek. Hi, um, this is Laura in Macon, Georgia. Um, I've been listening to you guys for almost a year now, and y'all were actually the second podcast I have ever started listening to. I just wanted to thank you guys for the hours and hours of entertainment that you create and also for the Yumber Yard that is just filled with extraordinary people that are really, really supportive of each other. Um, I guess I just wanted to say real quick that uh, even though times are tough and people can be annoying, especially right now, don't let the world harden your hearts. That's a thing that my dad always said. Part of the reason that I love the podcast so much is because your hearts really are on your sleeves when you're telling these stories. And that's really rare to find these days, and I really appreciate it. On a lighter note, hearing Scott giggling is probably one of my favorite things on the planet right now. It is so infectious and never fails to make me laugh right along with him. You guys never fail to brighten my day. Thanks again, and please sanitize your hats after you shit in them. <laughs> Bye. Please sanitize our hats after we shit in them. Okay. That's fantastic. That that was thank you, that Laura. Was the, that was from... the voicemail we needed after the after the yeah. step. That that's just so sweet. And I, I I swear to God, Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia is one of my favorite places. I, I I want to spend more time there. When I was there, it was just in and out, and I just loved every second of it. And I I'd love to go back. It was such a great place. Hello, baby. That was just, hey, babies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, here's one from uh, somebody here in British Columbia. Let's have a peek. Hi. Um, my name's uh, Mackenzie. I'm from Nanaimo, BC. 
and uh, I ha- I really enjoy your uh, podcast. It's my the like highlight of my day. I actually discovered your podcast while I was in Riverview uh, Mental Hospital as it recently reopened. Um, I was in the uh, youth, uh, the mental health. What is it called? <laughs> Sorry, the Maple Mental Treatment for Adolescents. Um, and yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the recently reopened hospital. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much for uh, the message and uh, sharing. Yeah, well, thanks, Mackenzie. Mackenzie is says she's from Nanaimo. Um, it's interesting that they have reopened, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I think that uh, having parts of Riverview reopen uh, for mental health is is awesome. Because yeah. honestly, I, there's not enough focus on people's psychological health anymore. Um, it, it's it's so crazy too because we're we're we've never been more aware as a society and as a culture the impact of mental health, but yet there's still so little in place to yeah totally to actually support it. And uh, I you know I'm not all that up to date with how much Riverview. It has reopened and stuff, but yeah, just like you said, Mike, like the um, the more support and places we have for people to go to seek mental health treatment, I'm a hundred percent on board with. Yeah, and as somebody who has received treatment in an inpatient way, um, I think it is a, a fantastic thing. Yeah, um, it definitely did help me uh i believe it saved my life at the time mm. so yeah i'm all for more of that i mean i realize that it's expensive and it's uh one of those things that uh how long do you keep somebody and about the the whole idea of voluntary versus involuntary treatment is a very gray area now mm-hmm. especially with our our charter of rights and freedoms and and that kind of thing so um, I think BC is making steps in the right direction by having more mental health beds for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, Mackenzie, for uh, bringing that up and asking us. Here's one from Ontario. Hmm. Hey, guys. So, you know, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm in Ontario in Gravenhurst, pretty touristy town. My name's Kat. Uh... I really like you guys. You're pretty awesome. Uh, I'm just enjoying my morning coffee, having a wake and bake, if you will, and decided <laughs> I should maybe just give you a call and say, hey, guys, what's up? Uh, you guys are pretty rad. You make my day a shit ton better. Uh, I'm dealing with some hardcore postpartum right now, and it really sucks. So when you guys mentioned that you've dealt with some depression, it's kind of nice to know that, uh, you know, I know you're not dealing with postpartum, but it's nice to know that other people uh, like to speak about it because I do like to speak about it. So it's nice to know that I'm really not the only one. Anyway, take care. Keep your distance from people. Don't talk to anybody. Have fun in the Corona apocalypse. 
Uh, peace, love, Miles, and hopefully I get to meet you in person someday. Cool, dude. Have a nice day, man. Rat. Thanks, Kat, from Ravenhurst, Ontario. I'm really loving that people associate us with mental health. <laughs> but I, like, I genuinely mean thing. that because it's uh, it needs to be talked about more. Yeah, you know. And so if we if we're if we're able, it's too bad our mental health is so bad is so poor. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like we get it. We get it. We've both been. We've both. <laughs> been fucked up with with depression i can't i can't begin to explain how long and how bad my bout was and so it yeah. uh, went for years well i mean it's my whole life but then i broke for years and um couldn't work for years and like it's just i i get it i get it and so uh yeah uh i i'm glad that people uh uh, we're able to help some people in any capacity. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Especially right now. It's things are tough. Like yeah. things have been tough, tough for me for the past couple of days. I, I, I got to own up to it. I'm, I've been kind of having a little bit of a rough time, but, yeah. uh, you know, I'm going out for walks. That seems to be the best thing for my mental health is to go out and get some fresh air. Um, so that's been helping. I've been walking over four kilometers a day. <laughs> Good for you, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to keep that up, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. The, with it, like uh, one of the worst things for mental health is isolation. <laughs> and so the, like it's the challenge is we're forced into isolation currently. And so for people yeah. already struggling, it can be equally difficult. So you reach out and talk to people. Utilize the technology that's there. If you can't go and be with somebody, message them, call them. You know, you, you got to utilize what's there in this in this very challenging time. Hundred percent. All right, let's uh, move on from voicemails. Those were some really sort of thoughtful voicemails really this were. week. Yeah. Thank you very much to all of our uh, voicemail participants. Uh, <laughs> participants, yeah. uh, don't forget if you want to send us a message. Our phone number can be found at darkpoutine.com slash contact, or you can just call 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN, darkpoutine, darkpoutine, darkpoutine. So yeah, let's move on to uh, Patreon shout outs. Oh yeah. We're going to shout at patrons. God damn now, it. No, the first thing I want to say is thank you. Uh, a lot of people responded in the positive for us to keep going as far as uh, whether or not to pause our Patreon. And it the votes was were 95% to 5% wow. to keep going. So, uh, wow. We, <laughs> That's a pretty resounding yeah, yes. Yeah. Thank you to everybody who took the time out to vote or, or people who didn't even vote messaged me after and just said, yeah, I didn't get a chance to vote, but I still think that you guys should carry on kind of thing. And what I've done is for the, there were five, uh, like eight people yeah. who have, uh, they felt we should pause. And I thought, why are they feeling this way? And I realized maybe it's because they're struggling. Yep. So... What I've done, I've just refunded them last month's money. Oh, wow. They will see within a few days the 
money return on their credit card. It's, you know, it's not a big thing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure if they felt that it was something that they couldn't manage this month, they won't have to. That was really kind of you. Wasn't a tough decision to make at all. So, uh, yeah, we just wanted to be sure that, uh, we're doing the right things for folks during this weird crap that we're all going through. Yeah. <laughs> Is very polite. You can kind of hear the heaviness way to in say my that, voice. Mike. This weird crap we're going through. I can even I can hear the heaviness in my own voice this week. So. This is like it's we're watching. We're constantly focused and watching a counter of death increasing. Mm. Like that's yeah. that that's terrifying. Like that's going to impact us, man. We're literally watching yeah. a counter go up every day of people dying. Yeah, and if you're not disturbed by that, I I am disturbed by you. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely know what you mean. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's rough. All right, uh let's let's get going with these shout-outs here. Let's shout them out. Uh, let's shout them out. First up we have Leslie Slaney from East Yorkshire oh. in the you can you you in the K. Yeah, it's um it's not as nice as West Yorkshire, but, you know. Oh, isn't it? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of shout-outs here. <laughs> Holy crap. Oh, man. Okay. Well. Well, I'm not, I'm not sad about that. No. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Kayella Marie Earl, and she's from Sudbury, Ontario. Oh, hey. Hey, Sudbury. Thank you very much. Very much, oh. Next up, we have... Laura Gardner, and she's from Ladner, British oh. Columbia, just down the road. A hop, skip, and a jump away. Another one from just a hop, skip, and a jump is Melissa Olstrom, and she's from Abbotsford, BC. Oh, we're all neighbors. Holy crap, it just goes on. This week is amazing. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm just, I'm moved by this. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, oh yes, our friends, Shay and Aaron from All Crime No Cattle oh. in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, well, thank you guys. They accompanied me to the uh, book depository so we could do the Lee Harvey Oswald yeah, uh, yeah. tour. And you went, there. Uh, you went to a hockey game with them, a Dallas uh, game yeah. with them. And... They paid for the hockey game and what? now they're paying, uh, they're giving us a patron, with, which is amazing. You don't have to do that, but they're doing it anyway. Wow, very kind guys. Thanks. Uh, next up, we have Robin Harrison, and she's from Kimberly, B.C. Woo. Well, look at British Columbia stepping up. Wow, no kidding. Right? Uh, Amber Stowell from Milwaukee, Oregon. She just friended me on Facebook. Well, there you go. Yeah. Jenna Kelly, who I met in Calgary, Alberta. Thank you, Jenna. Oh, yeah, I know who she is. She's a younger yarder. You definitely do. She's got funky hair. Yep, Yumber Yarder for life. <laughs> Jenny Bruce from Palm Coast, Florida. Whoa. All the fun we make of Florida and we still have patrons from Florida. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe they agree with us. Tila King Turco from Williams Lake, British Columbia. I wonder if she's related to Marty Turco. Uh, I actually know Tila. We went to school together in high school. You did? Yep. Really? Yep. Yeah, 100%. Yep. She's in the Yumber Yard. Oh. We, we, we chat every once in a while. Uh, super, super, super nice, nice lady. Yeah, yeah. We went to high school together. No, I know, oh, well, I, I'm well. sorry for you, Tila. 
Hmm? So you know Scott personally, which is terrible. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> Candace Seeger from Sherwood Park, Alberta. Thank you, Candace. Thank you. Antonius Paolini from Surrey, British Columbia. And this guy messaged me the other day saying, I think I'm your neighbor. Oh, wow. What, 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 yep. And what an amazing name. Yeah. And by his address, yeah, he's our neighbor. Like how close? <laughs> the close. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Allison McCauley is from York, Ontario. Wow. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Allison. Nicole Langdon is from St. John's, Newfoundland. Lots of Canadians yeah. here this week. Thank you so much. Representing. Sam McCorston from North Vancouver, British Columbia. Oh, well, there we go, little North Van. North Van. Jesse Griffin from Seminole, Florida. Thank you, Jesse. Another Floridian. Another Floridian. Lisa Davis from Reading, England, upped her pledge. Well, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if I could live there. Right? Because of the reading part. Our friend Nicole Brennan from Coquitlam, British Columbia, upped her pledge as well. Thank you, Nicole. It's, this is blowing me away. Yeah. Nikki Dykema from Duncan, British Columbia, upped her pledge. A lovely place. It's amazing. Yeah. I at the world's largest hockey stick. Yep, it's true. Genevieve Richard from Dieppe, New Brunswick. Well, thank you, Genevieve. Muchos gracias. Stephanie Charisse LeBlanc from Devonshire, oh, from Coquitlam, British Columbia. Oh, man, so much BC. Right? Uh, Aaron Murray from La Habra, California. Oh, US and US and A. <laughs> La Habra. Is that where La Habra. The, the Chupacabra live in La Habra? It was Chupacabra in La Habra. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Sarah Cyril from Portland or uh, Portland, Texas. I didn't think there was a oh. Portland in Texas. I didn't know that. Should just, I thought it was only Oregon or Maine. They should really, names, there should only be one city name allowed. Like you can't, because like Vancouver, Washington, they need to change it. That's befuddling. In, especially they're so close to us. Right. Yeah. Uh, Julie Essen. From Reston, Virginia, upped her pledge. Thank you, Julie. Was it Julie? That, yeah. Oh, thank you, Julie. We, you guys are amazing. Uh, here's Vicki Ansley. Now, I don't know where Vicki's from. Oh, uh, uh, Northampton. Uh-huh. Yep. Northampton in what? the Hamptons. <sighs> what? We've had people from the Hamptons. Come on. Oh, oh, have we? Oh, yeah, we we recently did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's why I got confused. Yeah, she. Okay. Yeah, she's actually, or she. He, you said Nikki, right? Vicky. Yeah, yeah. Um, with two Ks. Yeah. From um, um, oh, Fort Saint John. Oh, okay. Yep. British Columbia. Yeah, Fort Saint John, British Columbia. Yep. What does she do up there in Fort in the fort? Well, she it's a, there's a lot of uh, oil. There's a big oil yeah, industry well, there. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, and she she fills uh, the oil uh, uh, like barrels. 
the the bottles. Like when you go to a gas station, you're like, I need oil, and they have it in bottles. She fills them. Oh, the <laughs> it's not as automated as, as you would think. Like you, she she got a hand like she gets oh. a funnel, and, right. and hand pours the oil into each bottle. I think you're full of shit. I don't know why you would think that. And lastly, we have Sharon Dale, and I don't know where Sharon's from either. Oh, Sharon Dale. Yep. Yeah, Sharon Dale. Yeah, she's from um, um, Indonesia. Indonesia. Yeah, Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. She teaches Muay Thai in Indonesia. Haven't we had a Muay Thai teacher from Indonesia before? Uh, well, they're quite popular. I think I think you keep repeating yourself no, here, Scott. No. You got to be more creative, no, my friend. I don't have Mike. I don't have my globe. I'm not there. I don't have. I've got. A, oh, it's true. I do have a little globe yeah, on the desk. I don't, Scott, I, I'm, this, that I, I'm having tends to, free to be ball Scott's this. help. <laughs> and there was like a hundred tonight, and so I'm just I'm throwing yeah. I'm throwing off. We only had two that you had to come up with something. That's a lot of two. It's a big two. It's a big two. <laughs> Ayo. <laughs> Ayo. Well, okay. Let's go have a look and see about donut money. Oh. I think we did get some donut money this week too. Mm -hmm. uh, if we didn't, that's cool. Uh, I'm I'm cool with that. Okay. Oh boy. Irene Brienne sent us some more money. Oh. She said a little a little something nice from Mike Carroll Scott, Joanna, Bibby, and Violet from a grateful listener, lots of hugs. Oh, that was so sweet. She even got she said Bibby. She mentioned the girls, Aww. Bibby and Violet. That's kind of cool. That's the sweetest. And 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 here's a rather large donation from uh Adam Prescott. Oh. He says, Hi friends. Hope all is well and that this donut money coming from your way from Wisconsin helps in these uncharted times. I'm a longtime fan and appreciate you two more than you can know. I'm a police officer, insert donut money joke, and am appreciative of your focus on survivors, victims, your tact, and your perfectly timed and perfectly dark humor. Your take on things often reminds me of why I got in this line of work in the first place. Even in this wild time of social distancing, we find ways to connect with one another. Dark poutine and the community you've built around it, that connection is that connection that many are looking for. Your impact reaches further than you think than you realize. Kudos and keep doing what you're doing, AP. Oh, are people trying to make us cry? Because well, I'm going to cry. I don't know. Well. Like this, this people are being so sweet. So thank you very much, Adam. We really appreciate that. Like that means a lot to yeah, us. Yeah, seriously. Just your note. Just your note means a lot. Yeah. And you've sent us uh, more. Uh, you sent us a good sized donation too. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Seriously, that's beautiful. So thanks to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. That's a lot of peas. <laughs> a lot of p alliterations. Not p like. Not that kind of P. Yep, good. If you want to help, if you want to help support the show, you can do so at a Patreon.com/slash/DarkPoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, DarkPoutinePodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. You can easily rate us on Podchaser.com. 
Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. You can follow me on Twitch now as I write. <laughs> I have my writing stream, and I have people chatting with me as I write, which is kind of cool. That's Just go cool. to twitch.tv slash darkpoutine. And we're going to do some more live stream stuff with our Zoom room, so we're going to have some fun. Most importantly, though, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Wash your hands. Stay away. <laughs> Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.